Old Days Podcast. I am Maggie Coomer. And I'm Jasmine Brand. And this is episode 10. 10 episodes, Jasmine. Can you believe it? No, it's flown by. I know. If you're new to this podcast, Jasmine and I find and research different historical events and fascinating people, and then we tell you the story, their story, the story, with bits of historical context and a little bit of wry humor baked right in. So today we are talking about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. So buckle up, boys and girls. Jasmine, I think this was actually a recommendation from one of our listeners, right? Yeah, this one came to us from Michael through Facebook. He left us a comment on our page. And if any of our listeners have recommendations, you can also leave comments on our our various different social media pages or write to us. We're on Facebook and Instagram at The Good Old Days Pod. We're on Twitter at The Good OD Pod. Or you can just send us a good old-fashioned email at The Good Old Days Pod at gmail.com favorite sources there is so much out there on this topic Uh, lots and lots of scholarship Uh, one of my favorite sources has been the cornell.edu website for the triangle shirtwaist factory fire Uh, and it has loads of um, uh, interviews most of them uh, were conducted by an author named Leon Stein. The Triangle Fire by Leon Stein was a great resource. PBS has a bunch of articles about the Triangle Fire. I also uh, access the Department of Labor website for different statistics, and uh, they have a really good page on the Triangle Fire as well. Jasmine, what were some of your favorite sources? I really liked the PBS documentary, American Experience, The Triangle Factory. I really got a lot out of reading the newspapers that were published right after the fire as well. And I found a really interesting article in an unexpected place. It was in a law review type journal, and it was called The Triangle Fire, Tragedy, Trial, and Triumph. And it just goes through some of the details from a different point of view. And that was by Robert and Marilyn Atkin. In late afternoon of March 25, 1911, hundreds of workers at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory readied themselves to leave at the end of the workday. It was a Saturday, so the workers, mainly young immigrant women of Jewish and Italian descent, buzzed with excitement over their weekend plans after their six-day, 60- to 70-hour work week. Unfortunately, many of them would never make it out of the building alive. On the eighth floor, at about 5 p.m., a fire sparked and quickly consumed the two floors above it. Because this was a garment factory, loads of flammable materials were stacked floor to ceiling. The fire only lasted 30 minutes, but the destruction was devastating. 146 people died, mostly young women, either by burning alive, throwing themselves down the elevator shafts, or jumping from the windows. Many considered the horrific events of that day to be the catalyst for real workplace and social reforms throughout New York and eventually the rest of the United States. This is the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. So Triangle is a garment factory, and they specifically make shirtwaist. So what is a shirtwaist, Jasmine? What what type of clothing is that? So it's 
a female take on a male button-up shirt, essentially, for the time. Women weren't wearing these kinds of, of things until they become essentially working women. So this is going to become a symbol of the Gibson girl, if you're familiar with, with that sort of style, or just the working woman in general. It was buttons, so she could do it up herself. She can switch them out from day to day. Some of them are going to be embroidered with silk and be a little fancier. Some of them are going to just be plain working shirts. I saw a, I saw where the Triangle Shirtwaist factory was churning out about a 1,000 shirts a day. And at $3 each, that's going to rake them in money. Now, at this point in 1911, there are over 450 garment factories in New York City, employing nearly 40,000 workers. We have on previous episodes talked about like Irish immigration. A lot of the Irish immigrants that had moved into the city in the 1800s have since moved out to different opportunities. So whether that's cities farther west, whether they've moved out west via the Oregon Trail, and new immigrants are coming in from Italy and Poland and all of these different places. And they're coming in very large numbers. So uh, referring back to some statistics, between 1900 and 1915, 15 million people are immigrating to the U.S. And by 1910, three quarters of New York's population is comprised of uh, either immigrants or first-generation American-born citizens. So New York is starting to change. Even though it's always been a city of immigration, it really ramps up right at the turn of the 20th century. And most of these Italian, Jewish, Russian, Polish, most of these immigrants are coming uh, to New York and going straight into the garment industry, which is a monster at the turn of the century in New York. Working class families, pretty much everyone worked. So you would have... Mom, dad, kids really over 10 working in these different factories, whether they're working in garment factories or otherwise. And there are really no safety precautions placed upon them by the government. So to give you an idea of that, the National Safety Council estimated that in 1912, 18,000 to 21,000 workers died from work-related injuries. In 1913, the Bureau of Labor Statistics documented that approximately 23,000 industrial deaths among a workforce of 38 million equivalent to a rate of 61 deaths per 100,000 workers. Today, that rate is four deaths per 100,000 workers. The increasing amount of immigration meant that already crowded dwellings became even more overrun and the competition for jobs became incredibly fierce. So if a business owner hired one person at $6 a a week. And after a couple months, they asked for a raise, didn't like that. There was nothing to stop them from giving them the boot and hiring even a a 10-year-old child for probably free for at least the first six weeks and then paying them as little as $2 a week. There's some pretty, pretty nasty practices happening in these factories. I mean, even more so if you are a garment worker and you break a needle or thread or your machine can't produce as much as you need it to in that day and your pay gets docked, as the main wage earner, you have to go back to your family and tell them, well, we we can't afford as much food this week. 
Triangle, the factory itself, occupied the top three floors of the Ash Building. This is a 10-story building located right next to Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village. Sources vary, but there were about 200 machines on, I believe, the the 8th and ninth floors each. And then on the 10th floor is really where the administrators were. So the bosses, the owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, two men named Max Blank and Isaac Harris. Uh, They were both Russian immigrants. They had immigrated to the United States in the early 1890s. They uh, ended up going into business together. They had both worked in the garment industry. And they go into business together in 1902, and they start the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory uh, in the Ash Building. Uh, Their business by 1908 was earning about a million dollars per year. But they were not without their woes. Keep in mind, this is at a a major point in the labor movement. So people are going to strike, and Triangle is not going to be exempt from the strikes. So, Jasmine, what happens in 1909? So in 1909, an event happens known as the shirtwaist strike or the uprising of 20,000. And essentially, workers just get up and walk away from their workstations. They're trying to disrupt the work in order to garner better wages, better working hours, and better safety conditions for themselves. And this is across all of those garment shops that are in New York. This isn't specific to the Triangle Factory, although they're going to take kind of a key point in this. Now, at this point, a typical work week is 65 to 75 hours a week over six days. And pay on average is three to four dollars per week. To put that into perspective, most people were paying three dollars just in rent per week. So if all of your paycheck is going to rent, where are you supposed to get money for food and clothes and all of those other things? And it, it was pretty expensive. I pulled some statistics just to like show you what that's costing, like cost of living, I suppose. So rent in a typical tenement for most people averages about $3. Eggs are 40 cents a dozen. Butter is 30 cents per pound. Coffee is 95 cents per five pound bag. And cough syrup, if you happen to get a cold, was 19 cents a bottle. So if you're left with a dollar each week, you have to pick very carefully of what other things that you're buying. After almost I mean, almost a full year of striking when the next like high season's coming in, factories really feel pressured to come to some sort of agreement. The smaller factories buckle, well, a lot quicker than the the bigger ones, and they'll become unionized, union-only factories and give in to those demands and have, I guess, more of a working relationship with their employees. Other factories, notably the largest in the city, the Triangle, does not give in to those demands. What they instead offer is a employer-sanctioned union, which is not really a union. They're going to host this and use it essentially to control what workers are doing and essentially feed themselves information on what they want and how they can undermine them further. So workers say, no, we're not interested in that. And and we want to be union only. The triangle comes back and says, absolutely not. We'll just hire some new immigrants. We really don't care if you come back to work for us or not. And eventually what they come up with is that the triangle will not be unionized, but they will reduce hours and increase pay. 
That does not, however, resolve any safety issues. And it really leaves the men and women, mostly women, without much of a voice in their own workplace. They have nowhere to go from here. They cannot renegotiate this. So as inflation rises, they would have to strike again to then get another raise. It also hasn't addressed their safety concerns within these buildings. Per Max Hochfield, one of the survivors, quote, At that time, the floors were wooden floors, and they were soaked through with oil. The baskets that people worked with were wicker baskets, and each basket contained about four to five dozen blouses, lingerie at the time, and lace. How much does it take to catch fire? End quote. Now, it was pretty typical for Blank and Harris, uh, according to the workers. They kept all secondary exits locked so they could make sure the employees all left from one door so they could search them. They had the foreman on the floors open up the bags of the women to make sure they didn't steal bits of lace or trimmings or bits of cloth or anything like that. Um, There were four elevators, two freight and two passengers. But again, for the same reason, as as I just said, uh, only one or two were turned on. And so this is this was pretty standard practice for the, the Triangle Factory. The day of the fire, March 25th, 1911, it apparently was a beautiful spring day. Every single source I encountered would talk about how gorgeous the weather was. It was also payday, so uh, they had gone around and, and distributed the pay for the workers, and at 5 o'clock, the bell rang. Now, no one really knows for sure what happened, but people start screaming fire. The eighth floor where the fire would start was set up, and I'm going to try and describe this to you the best I can. There are lots of good images online, and we'll post some in our show notes as well. The eighth floor is mostly open. It's set up with rows and rows and rows of sewing machines. There's a small dressing room, a bathroom, and two exit points. One that would exit to Green Street and one to Washington Place. They are in opposite corners from each other. There are also four sets of elevators. Two are considered freight and two are considered passenger elevators. The freight elevator is actually going to cause some issues. Someone comes up via that as the fire starting and essentially causes this inferno that's going to run across the entire side of the building, basically blocking the exit door that was open and making it this tunnel of fire as it moves towards the other door that is is closed. Now, the elevator in that corner is operating, so they will be able to get several loads full of people out. And these elevators are only designed to hold about 12 people. But as you can imagine, panicked people are rushing these and really packing packing in them. The other thing I've left out is the fire escape. The fire escape was not to the street. It would have left out to an alley in between the ash building and the building next to it, which was technically not up to fire code. And it also stopped short. It stopped around the second story. So it didn't go all the way down and it couldn't bear the weight. Um, Different reports between 20 and 50 women tried to escape via this route and the whole fire escape collapsed and 
there would be reports of them just literally being in a pile in this alley at the at the bottom of it and in quite a horrific, horrific fashion. Several sources report differing causes of the fire. I'll agree it starts on the eighth floor, but some say a lit match and a bucket of cotton scraps is what started it. Others say a cigarette was left burning at a workstation. One of the floor bosses apparently picked up a bucket of clear liquid to put out what was a small fire as it started, but it turned out to be an accelerant, perhaps grain alcohol, and that caused the fire to explode. And then you have what Jasmine mentioned, the freight elevator coming up and causing a backdraft, essentially, which causes an inferno explosion. Per Leon Stein's interviews with a woman named Ida Kornweiser, she gives a pretty startling account of of what happened. And that is, quote, I worked in the center of the shop on the side where the windows were. I remember the bell had rung. Every time the bell rang, the girls would go out. We went to the door to leave, and all of a sudden, somebody was hollering fire. Before we had a chance to look around, everything was burning. I had brought... I had bought a new hat on Friday, and the hat was in the dressing room. I took one look into the shop and decided to leave my brand new hat in the dressing room. I had my pay money in my hand. I don't know what made me do it, but right there, I bent over and pushed my pay into the top of my stocking. Then I ran into the staircase hall, but the flames were coming up from downstairs. I tried to get through, but I could not. There was too much heat. I ran back into the shop. I don't know where it came from, but I found a roll of lawn piece goods. Maybe it, was a, it wasn't a whole roll. So essentially, she finds a big roll of fabric. It was white lawn. I wrapped it around me all the way around until only my face showed. And then I ran right into the fire in the stairway hall. I ran upstairs. I gasped for breath. The lawn caught fire as I ran, and I kept peeling it off of me. I kept turning and twisting while I was running because the burning lawn was on me. And she obviously she does survive, Um, but she said she made it down to the street and she had one scrap left and it was burning and she suffered burns on her arm. But she basically like unrolled herself as she's running down the stairwell on fire, eight flights of stairs. Can you believe that? It's amazing that she even thought to do that. Like, I don't think I in the moment would think here's some fabric. Let me wrap myself in it. Many of the survivors said they saw women running to the dressing room to get their clothes, i.e. their hats, their coats, uh, before trying to escape. And they ended up choking to death on the smoke because it happened so fast. But these women are going to get like she just said she left her brand new hat like she thought about going to get it. But so many went to the dressing room to get their stuff because they're making so little. This is probably their one new garment or their one hat or their one coat. And if they're if it burns, then they're out of luck. Well, and a, another point to bring up with that is we all grow up. Well, I would say most of us grow up in schools like doing fire drills, leave everything. You go every time you get on a plane, they tell you if there's an emergency, you leave everything because it goes against what you think. You want to grab your stuff and take it with you. And a big issue with this fire is they never had run a fire drill. And most of them didn't even know there was a fire escape. A lot of them didn't even know there was a second door. 
They didn't know that there was a fire escape. They didn't know there was a second door. So there's a lot of issues going into that. So I would completely understand that. If no one had ever told me to leave all of my stuff and get out, I probably would have done the same as those women. Both Blank and Harris were actually at the factory at that time. They were up on the 10th floor. And someone called them and alerted them. So they were actually able to make it to the roof Uh, And sources vary on this, but they made it to the roof with about 50 or 60 other employees who were all working on the 10th floor. The people on the 8th floor, well, when they saw the fire, most of them booked it down the staircase. But no one bothered to let the 9th floor know. Now, we mentioned the elevators. And what's rule number one in a fire? You don't take the elevator, right? You take the stairs. But that was not... Not advice given to these women. They had never gone through a fire drill. They had no idea what they were supposed to be doing. So they start crowding the elevators. The elevators, are they plummet to the bottom of the to the basement. And then people start jumping down the elevator shafts. I read one account of a woman who actually survived. She Before the cable broke, she jumped on the cable and she was speeding down. She burned her hands. It ripped her clothing off because she was going so fast, she hit the top of the elevator. This is before it crashed to the ground. And she said people started falling on top of her. And the uh, the firemen, when they find this, you know, this carnage, they laid her out on the sidewalk thinking she was dead. And she showed life. And so they were like, oh, okay. So they took her to the hospital. And apparently she's, I, th- I think I read she, this woman snuck out of the hospital because her mother was sick. So she like left the, before the doctors could see her. And she was, yeah, the, her injuries, she was sick for six weeks as a result. But that, I thought that was a pretty amazing story. That's incredible. I, um, well, the PBS documentary gave one account and they didn't give the woman's name that I remember, but. She had gotten into the elevator, and her sister, who was literally right behind her, didn't. She said the last view of her sister, who was named Margaret, was she could just see her engulfed in flames. And then she heard a thud on the top of the elevator, and she said she just knew it was her sister. Oh, my God. And I think that was the most like heartbreaking story I came across when I was doing all of this. And there's so many stories like that. I think what something like a thousand people had crowded around the building as the the fire departments were, were rushing down the street, trying to, to get to the triangle factory. And at this point, there's still horse drawn fire brigades. So they, they responded very quickly, but they didn't have the technology to help uh, in a fire situation in a 10-story building, their ladders went to the 6th floor. They could not reach the 8th, ninth, and 10th floors. So it's a really flaccid attempt to save these women and these men. It, it just gets really, really gory, really bloody, really fast. Yeah. So as the fire and smoke builds up on the 8th and ninth floors, and these women and some men are trapped in these spaces... They start to open the windows. They go to the windows to try and get lungfuls of fresh air. And they realize they're faced with a choice. They can either stay in these spaces and die of smoke or fire, or they can jump out of the window, take their chances, perhaps land in a fireman's net, or more likely crash down onto the pavement where they will meet their death. And 
dozens and dozens of people choose that option rather than be engulfed by flames. They will climb up onto the the side of the window ledges, sometimes hugging each other, and they will will jump down to the horror of the crowds below. And and people are on the street screaming at them to stop. The firemen, despite their best efforts, their nets are not enough for the velocity of the people crashing down below them. Well, and I mean, the the, the bodies are just tearing through the nets. Uh, this is a quote from Joseph Fletcher, the office manager. Quote, they pulled out a net six to seven feet wide. Six to seven firemen kept the net up. When a man took it on himself to jump, he would go right through the net and hit the sidewalk. So there are bystanders on the street watching this. And people are, I mean, if you get hit by a falling body, I mean, you're going to die as well. So everyone's like, get out of the street, get out of the street. And watching this horrific scene, I read one account where before they started jumping, someone was looking up and and, and a a bystander said they they thought someone was trying to save their best fabric because they saw fabric coming through the window and it turned out to be a woman in her skirts and she hit the pavement in front of this person which i mean good god yeah there was a description probably one of the most famous descriptions that that i came across from a reporter who just happened to be in washington square when this is all unfolding his name was william shepherd and how he describes this in his article that like travels all throughout the United States is he says thud dead thud dead thud dead thud dead 62 thud deads I'll call them that because the sound and the thought of death came to me each time at the same instance there was plenty of chance to watch them as there came down the height was 80 feet I thought the quote the floods of water from the fireman's hose that ran into the gutter were actually stained red with blood. But that's another thing to note. The The firemen didn't have the water pressure, so they couldn't get ladders up there and they couldn't get water. There was absolutely no hope to save any of these women if they just didn't get out of there. Yeah. A newspaper, well, newspapers all across the country reported the following occurrence. Then came the love amid the flames. He brought another girl to the window. Those of us who were looking saw her put her arms around him and kiss him. He then held her out to space and dropped her. But quick as a flash, he was on the windowsill himself. His coat fluttered upwards. The air filled his trouser legs. I could see that he wore tan shoes and hose. His hat remained on his head. Thud dead, thud dead. Together they went into eternity. I saw his face before they covered it. You could see in it that he was a real man, that he had done his best. So, Jasmine, you 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 spent a lot of time on the newspaper side of things. So I focused on New York newspapers because, of course, this made papers all across the country. But I wanted to focus on what New Yorkers were saying about this. And it made all the front pages And I think in a little bit of a different sense of how we would report or expect to see this reported on today, a lot of those newspapers, the front images were pictures of 
piles of women and of course occasionally men on the sidewalk there was one even in the new york times that had a picture of a police officer just holding a coffin behind him there was a pile of bodies and so it had this massive shock value even if you hadn't been there to witness this you get a very clear picture of what's going on just by looking at the front pages of these newspapers there was a really sad part about this is there are some families that would continue to put ads in these newspapers for months looking for their loved ones that hadn't come home. And of course, they're aware that they likely died in the fire, but they're just not willing to let that go because they went unidentified. And they'll talk about, um, <clears throat> excuse me, they'll talk about that morning, March 26th, that by 6 a.m., 500 people are already at the morgue. And by the end of the day, there's somewhere between 40 and 50,000 people like wanting to see the victims. On March 27th, we start to see more pictures come out. So pictures of the locked gates. And, and the best way I can think to describe this to you is if you think of Titanic, with the the third class passengers, those gates that they put up at the stairs. I know exactly. They they ram a bench through one of those suckers. Exactly that. That's exactly the gate that is shown across the bottom of these stairs. So even they're saying even if they had gotten through that locked door, they would not have been able to get out. And that's there. I mean, you can it's basically the staircase and this gate standing amongst like rubble. So it's it's pretty powerful image, and that gets splashed across the newspapers all across New York City. And it's turning into this, well, it wasn't just that the building was defective, it's that the people who were running it purposely took steps to ensure that if there was a disaster, people couldn't get out. Not that they knew that that was going to happen or they did it on purpose, but they didn't help themselves. It's interesting that you bring <laughs> that up. Let's get into this. So... Uh, I said people were outraged. People were angry. On April 5th, 1911, there is a mass funeral procession that's really, it's sort of a protest. Uh, but 100,000 people march in the streets following horse-pulled carts. And 400,000 other New Yorkers gather on the sides of the sidewalks to watch this procession. So you have 500,000 New Yorkers who come out into the street for this funeral to honor these 146 dead women and men, uh, workers of the Triangle Factory. Harris and Blank, the newspapers are already gearing up and, and making it known that this was this was negligence. So Harris and Blank were indicted on seven counts of manslaughter in April, and they were taken to trial many People think that this trial was fixed ahead of time. Uh, the judge was a man named C.T. Crane, and the defense lawyer was a man named Max Stower. Uh, both of these men had serious ties to Tammany Hall, the big corrupt Democratic Party machine in New York. Uh, Max Hochfield and Dora Miller, both survivors, uh, were both leaning that way. And in their oral history that was recorded in the Stein book, uh, Max flat out said that he thought the, the judge was paid off. Max pointed out that when the judge died, he left behind a bunch of property, which was much too high a value to be purchased with a judge's salary. Uh, Dora Miller said that Max Blank and Isaac Harris lost a lot of money during the strikes of 1909 and 1910. 
she herself striked for 25 weeks. So she was able to, you know, really drive home the fact that this was a financial hardship. She said they ended up millionaires after the fire from insurance payments. But a hundred witnesses, Triangle Factory workers testified. But both Blank and Harris were acquitted on all seven counts of manslaughter. Now, there will be a civil trial, but it's peanuts, basically, on on what they make from insurance payments. The insurance payments show how fucked up this was. Harris and Blank reports vary on the amount, but they received $300 to $400 per dead worker from insurance payouts. The civil suit that really didn't do a whole lot for the families ruled against them a penalty of $75 to $95 per dead worker. So the owners of Triangle, who everything that we've just covered, it's clear that they were negligent. It's clear they were locking these doors to prevent you know, theft, according to them. Uh, but they received a net payout of at least $205 per worker who was killed in March of 1911 in their factory. I think that's fucking disgusting. <laughs> I think that is so gross. Oh, yeah, it still happens. Corporations are still allowed to take insurances out on us. So as workers, they can take out life insurance policies, and they're called corporate-owned life insurance or COLI policies. The most famous use of this, or infamous, I should say, is H.H. Holmes, who hired people, took out this insurance, and then murdered them in his murder castle. So that that's a fun one, and we're actually going to cover him in a few weeks, so we can we can get into this all over again. So blank and Harris did very little for the families of the dead workers. A couple of the survivors said they never got reimbursed for their their pay from that day if it burned up in the fire. Uh, but Max and Blank provided one week's pay to the families of the dead workers. So if you can imagine. Your sister, niece, aunt, your mother. I read accounts of a mother and, and her two daughters dying in this fire. If you can imagine having to go and 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 get this one week's pay and you end up with like $12 for your dead loved one, how heartbreaking that would be. There were also accusations that the police, the police, the police. The fire, police, morticians, etc. that handled the bodies had stolen from the dead workers. So they were pillaging, pilfering the bodies as they were coming through. Saturday was payday for one. So there were multiple reports of of pay, pay envelopes being lifted from these dead bodies. So if it wasn't bad enough already, people who were designated and, and, and paid to handle these types of situations to handle the bodies of these fallen victims well they were they were taking a five finger discount uh so let's talk about labor and safety reforms because we hinted that this is a big catalyst moment uh uh for these reforms a lot changes in in a very short amount of time and so this kind of starts in new york and eventually will spread throughout the United States. But New York is suitably enraged it happened in this city, and it'll be the first to undertake some of these policies. The main one being fire drills. Fire drills are mandatory, and there's no more paying off fire inspectors to get past 
the lacking lacking equipment and everything that's going on. So that's something that gets put in place. Tamney Hall makes a massive switch because of this. They'll start representing workers and pushing for some of these safety precautions. And part of that, of course, is is their own backing. Um, they have found a sneaky way into a new immigrant population after the the immigrant population that built them up the the Scots Irish kind of move on and and out, so they'll sweep in after the fire, help support some of these families who have lost family members or loved ones, and try and work towards pushing a lot of these reforms in a way to make themselves relevant as as well. The committee of safety is formed a few days before the funeral procession immediately following tragedy. So citizens come together and start meeting about what to do. Like, this is it. The buck stops here. We can't go on like this. Uh, The committee is able to put pressure on the legislators. And in June, the New York Factory Investigating Commission was formed, and they conducted a broad study of safety in factories. It lasts for about three years and produced 7,000 pages of testimony and analysis on everything from occupational diseases to unsanitary working conditions. A new labor code was enacted but was met with staunch opposition from industry allies. Now, per the Department of Labor, Francis Perkins, the labor secretary of labor for FDR, she actually testified before this commission. She did investigations personally and, um, quote, took the commissioners on field trips to visit factories. And she was quoted as saying the Triangle Factory Fire was the first day of the New Deal. So in this regard, the Triangle Factory is instrumental in the New Deal and is influencing policies even to this day. A lot of these safety and safety regulations that we enjoy and expect, like it's a no-brainer. Um, you know, a lot of these are derived from this tragic event, which I think it makes it all the more relevant. Well, and I think she's such a an interesting point with all of this, like Frances Perkins, because she is of the class of women who were educated. She didn't necessarily have to work, but there there's this connection for her. She's gone and studied economics and all of these things, and she wants to use that in the way that, that she ends up using it, which I think is so important for the changes that we see coming in, in this early part of the 1900s. You know, I think that goes... When you and I were talking a couple days ago about when you can stand up and do something, you absolutely should. These women could afford to be a pain in the ass, and they absolutely needed to do it to to help the other employees, women, men, young children who could not afford and had little to no impact on public policy. These these kind of educated, you know, high standing women who command respect from the upper crust, the the bureaucrats, the people who are making making the decisions. These women have to do something in order to make any kind of change. If if there weren't women like this, there would be no change whatsoever. (laughs) It would just if you can afford to be a pain in the ass, you absolutely should. That's that's my two cents there. Yeah, I agree. Even if it's not on massive things like labor reforms, like little things can make a big impact because if enough people can afford to be even a small pain in the ass, that leads to change. 
So thank you all so much for tuning in to episode 10 of the Good Old Days podcast. We really appreciate the support. Uh, We have two new reviews that we would like to call out on Apple Podcast. Uh, First review titled, Gotta Love the Good Old Days. Five stars. Really glad I found this podcast. Definitely great for the road. Glad to hear it. Thank you so much. It's a great review. We really appreciate it. Jasmine, what's the other one? We got reviewed by a fellow podcaster, Bring the Mio, and they said, Loving this podcast. The hosts are good and they deliver stories so diligently in a fun way. It's informative and I learned so much about history. Can't wait to continue to learn and listen. Awesome. If you want to have your review read out on our next full-length episode, head to Apple Podcast, drop us a review. You don't have to write anything if you don't want to. We're happy with ratings as well. So if you just want to drop a five-star for us, we would greatly appreciate it. It helps us get our name out there. And you can access that really easily from our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram accounts. It's the little link in our bio. So just go to that. It should link you right to Apple Podcasts. You can listen from there as well as leave us a review. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. Bye. Bye.